This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at the Black Dog Institute on the 30th of March 2016. The discussion topic is Not Sleeping, the Challenge of Insomnia. Our panel members are Professor Ron Grunstein, Professor of Sleep Medicine, Woolcock Institute of Medical Research, University of Sydney and Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Dr. Eliza Werner-Seidler, Research Fellow and Clinical Psychologist at the Black Dog Institute. Dr. Elizabeth Mason, Clinical and Research Psychologist, Clinical Research Unit for Anxiety and Depression at the St. Vincent's Hospital, Sydney. And Shirley Snedden joins us today to give us her insight and experience of living with insomnia. Our chairperson for the evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. Welcome to this month's Expert Insights. Um, We're delighted to have you here tonight and I'm very excited with our very experienced um, panel who are going to share their insights with us on a topic that's close to all of our hearts, which is sleep and insomnia. So to start with, Liz, I might check with you first of all. People often complain that they're not getting a good night's sleep, that they're not sleeping well enough. What is the hallmark of a good night's sleep? What does a good night's sleep look like? Certainly when we see people with insomnia, what we're talking about are people who have trouble falling asleep, so taking too long to fall asleep, trouble staying asleep or trouble waking up too early. In terms of, you know, the hallmarks, really, you know, there aren't very specific hallmarks that we use. Insomnia is very much a subjective diagnosis. It's if the patient complains that they're having difficulty sleeping, Um, and that's lasting more than three months and more than three nights a week, then they would meet criteria for insomnia, regardless of whether they're uh, sleeping a long time or or not. I think Ron might might be able to add to it with some talk about physiological markers. A good night's sleep is when you wake up feeling refreshed, not necessarily immediately. We know there's a period of sleep inertia, which can last anywhere between 10 to 30 minutes where you feel a bit groggy. So not judging how rested you feel in that period, but after that period, do you feel fairly rested? Can you function pretty well during the day? Again, that doesn't mean, you know, are you feeling alert all day long? We know that there are dips in alertness as the day goes on, but generally functioning pretty well, feeling pretty refreshed from from your night's sleep. And Ron, is there anything you want to add to that um, in terms of both the good night's sleep and, and defining insomnia, I guess, which this was also going to? Yeah, look, I mean, insomnia is a bit like chest pain. There's many different causes. And, um, you know, when people complain of insomnia, you know, you can... Most of the people would probably have the traditional kind of definition of insomnia, but, you know, clinically you'd see a diverse group of people who would have... You can have people, about 20% of people with sleep apnea actually report insomnia symptoms as their primary complaint. Um, you've got people who've got movement disruption in sleep, say older people with uh, um, a movement disorder associated with REM sleep, which we now know is, is a forerunner of Parkinson's and dementia. Um, you get people with restless leg syndrome. You get adolescents with delayed sleep phase syndrome. So I think the key message about about um, insomnia is this diversity um, and so it's not simply you know like Liz is saying it's not simply a matter of sleep length but it's also a matter of there's, there's things we don't really understand but people can sleep seven hours and still be 
dissatisfied with sleep. And I think it's fair to say in current epidemiological views, there's a controversy about whether people are sleeping less now on average than in the past. I know that the newspapers say that we sleep less, but one thing's for sure is people are dissatisfied more with their sleep. Um, and why that is and, and all the different reasons are, are quite complex. So, Shirley, I might go to you. Um, you had poor sleep for many years. What was that like? What was it like to experience that and what was the impact of that for you? Uh, well, not being able to sleep is horrendous. I, I presume some of you have probably experienced nights of, you know, when you haven't slept well. Uh, maybe I'll describe what a night of not sleeping well was like for me. Um, because you've got to remember this happened over a 10-year period, most of the time. And I could usually get to sleep okay. Going to sleep was never a major problem. I mean, sometimes I couldn't. It would take me more than an hour or so. But generally, I could get to sleep quite quickly. And that would be less than five minutes and I'd be asleep. But I would often, well, always wake up. I was really happy if it was after midnight. Because at least then I thought, well, that's got to at least had an hour or two sleep. Because often I'd go to bed about 10.30. But waking up after midnight was my first, my goodness, thank you, at least I've had an hour and a half sleep tonight. Because often that would be it. There would be no more sleep. And I would still have to get up and function as a mum and go to work and do everything. But I set some rules for myself at different stages along the way. But I would often wake up. Depends, I might go back to sleep, I might not, but generally not. So I would get up um, in the night and I would try, I tried everything, you know, reading, I tried watching some TV that was really boring stuff, not anything stimulating. I tried all the typical um, things that, you know, people would suggest. But usually I couldn't get back to sleep, or if I did, I might get back to sleep at about five and then have another hour of sleep till about six. And, if I'd been lying there awake up until six, six was always my time where, okay, that's morning now. That's when most people would be getting up, so I'm gonna get up. Because then I could at least go for a walk for an hour and fill in some time. And then I'd just carry on my day and try to just function as well as I could to get through. And I was like that most of the time for 10 years. Most nights I would have between an hour to four hours sleep. And um, Elisa, what's the connection between sleep and our well-being, like how does sleep, like the sort of sleep deprivation Shirley's talking about, what what is the impact of that on a person's well-being? Well, I mean, not from a personal perspective because I happen to be quite a good sleeper, but we know from the research that it impacts everything. So um, quality of life, ability to do your job, ability to carry out the tasks that you have to do. There's, I think that people are very adaptive and get better at managing with, with how much sleep they do get, but there are a lot of indicators. It increases your risk at least twofold of develop, developing a mental health problem it, just based on, on, I mean, having insomnia as a primary presentation increases your risk of developing emotional problems. Because if you think about it, you're not, you're not functioning at your fullest, you're not getting the re restorative sleep that you actually need. And so across social, occupational, all the different domains of your life, you're not gonna be performing as well. That said, it's quite remarkable how well some people actually do. And, and I think sleep is so interesting because 
every, everybody can identify with what it's like to have one bad night's sleep. And by the second night's sleep, it's starting to drive you a little bit mad. But um, there are some people who deal with this in, in a much more enduring sense. And I, I think the body is very adaptable. You look at uh, new mums and how they manage the waking and the going back to sleep. And I think that um, people do find ways to manage, but overall it's, um, the consequences are, are, are really um, pervasive. And Ron, um, Elisa was talking about kind of the mental health consequences of poor sleep. What do we know about the physical health consequences of prolonged poor sleep? Yeah, look, I mean, there's a number of sources of information that are, you know, prospective epidemiological studies, like uh, probably the largest is the nurse's health study. Um, and you're often depending on information of self-report, uh, though increasingly you're getting data from epidemiological studies where they actually um, either measure sleep by activity monitoring or in some cases by, by sleep studies. Um, and I think it's, it's fair to say that depending on what you're looking at, I mean, I think there is mounting evidence that people who are, don't get enough sleep and perceive that they have insomnia and are measured short sleepers um, have greater risks of neurodegenerative disorders. So there's a sort of school of thought that, you know, it is actually important to get adequate sleep to, to prevent dementia. There's also evidence from studies where people have actually brought, you know, a large group of people, you know, 1,500, 2,000 people, do a sleep study on one night, measure where, what people, you know, sleep like under those conditions, which is sort of a bit of a challenge test to sleep wired up in laboratory. And if those people are sleep are short sleepers, i.e. less 5.5 hours or less, and complain about insomnia in their their day-to-day -day life, they have higher rates of developing obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and it's been argued mortality, although that's a bit more controversial. So generally, you know, having insomnia with measured short sleep is not good for you. It's a difficult thing because I think most people with, who complain of insomnia are anxious about it, you know, and, and they're you know, worried about it. And you've got to be careful what you say, you know, is evidence-based. And you see all this stuff about you must get 8.5 hours sleep. I mean, you know, that's just, you know, if you want to create more business for psychologists, you might as well keep saying that. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a challenge. So I might follow on from there and check with Liz. Um, there's a term called sleep anxiety. Do you want to explain a little bit about what sleep anxiety is about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd agree with Ron. Most patients you see with insomnia have this element of sleep anxiety, <clears throat> which is what it sounds like, anxiety about not sleeping and anxiety about the consequences, the next day consequences of not functioning. So, you know, uh, we talk about catastrophizing about the consequences of not sleeping properly. So if I don't get enough sleep or if I don't fall asleep now, <clears throat> I'm not gonna function at work tomorrow. Um, my mood's gonna be low. I'm gonna blow up at the kids. Um, I'm gonna just feel awful. Typically, uh, patients with insomnia are overly anxious about these consequences of inadequate sleep. So yes, we know from the studies Ron was talking about that over time, chronic sleep deprivation, you know, but that's really short sleep, probably is not good for your health. Um, most of the time on a day-to-day -day basis, if you have a poor night's sleep every now and then, it's not gonna be that terrible. And a big part of treatment is actually working with 
patients to try and help them reduce that catastrophizing about next day performance. And I think, you know, it's something we can all relate to. You know, we've all had times when we haven't slept properly and often it is the night before something big. I've got that big work presentation and if I don't sleep properly, I'm not going to do well in it. And then that over a few nights time can develop into anxiety about not sleeping at all. So perhaps you've got a bit of anxiety initially that's preventing sleep. We know arousal is going to inhibit sleeping properly. But then as time goes on, the anxiety becomes focused on inability to sleep. So Lisa, there's some things universally that people can do to um, help with their sleep. What are some of the kind of basics around sleeping well? Well, it's really interesting. Um, I, I was recently talking to some young people and finding out they weren't disturbed sleepers, um, but they, they had varying levels of um, ability to fall asleep and how long it took them. And just asking them what they thought were necessary to get a good night's sleep, it, it was quite remarkable. None of them had insight into the fact that actually a regular sleep-wake time is establishing a routine, is something that um, in the first instance is, is going to have great benefit for a lot of people. So particularly in young people, it, it means not going to bed at midnight on the weekends and sleeping in until uh, two o'clock in the afternoon, but then having a very regular sort of uh, week, weekday schedule. So I think just um, consistent sleep-wake times, including weekends, is, is probably a first port of call. Um, something else, and this comes from one of the, I mean, the psychological treatment is using your bed for pretty much sleep only. So, so not talking on your phone, not playing games, not doing things that you might come to associate as um, being arousing and might prevent sleep. Um, and importantly, if you're worrying and you're in bed and you're really awake, is to get out of bed. So, so I think the guidelines say around 20 minutes or so, and Liz, you can correct me, um, to, to go and do something else until you feel tired again so that you're breaking that association between the bed being a dangerous place that you're not actually going to be able to, to fall asleep in. And then there's basic sleep hygiene things which by themselves won't work, but things like making sure that your room is dark and quiet and just some really very basic um, uh, contextual things that you can do. Not drink caffeine late in the day. Make sure that you do some exercise if you're not sleepy at 10 o'clock when you try and go to bed um, and you have an office job and you're in front of a computer all day, actually increasing your activity so that you're more likely to be tired later. Just some of those very basic lifestyle things that I think as clinicians and doctors, we might sometimes take for granted that people know all of this, um, but remarkably, a lot of people don't. So, so, I mean, the first step really is just some basic education around what environments are going to be helpful and most likely to enable someone to sleep in. I think, I think there's another issue which I guess affects more older patients and that is that, you know, I mean, I guess if you don't have a problem with insomnia, you have a bad night's sleep, you know, you'll, you'll solve your own problem sort of thing. It's not, but people who've got a, a tendency to insomnia, um, you know, some of the things that you see older people do wrong, particularly even younger people, is that their response to having a bad night's sleep is to spend more time in bed. and. You know, for someone who's prone to insomnia, that's kind of not a good idea um, because invariably you get that phenomenon of people sort of spending a lot of time in bed, not, you know, some of their time not being able to sleep and getting that conditioning sort of response. So, and it is the basis of some of the, the um, I guess, behavioural strategies to deal with insomnia is actually bed restriction or some people call it sleep restriction. 
where your response to insomnia is actually to limit the time in bed to allow that sleep to be consolidated. It's difficult to do, like it's like a diet, you know, in some ways, but, but it is a, an important strategy for a lot of people, particularly older patients. How do people respond to the idea of sleep restriction? Like, how do you go in, in selling it? Well, you've got to invest some time to explain it because first, you know, some people think you're mad, you know, like you, you say to them, sleep less. But I think if you explain it to people um, and you certainly give them written instructions, our problem is that we don't have a, a very good sort of uh, way of doing it in a, let's say, automated fashion. Um, you know, a lot of it's dependent on, you know, instruction and, and writing. And I think where the field will go is as we get more sophisticated about making measurements and these devices that people wear, you will be able to, you know, build sleep restriction protocols in that we're, we're actually measuring what sleep people are getting and advising them what they should do in a behavioural sort of sense to avoid this sort of conditioning bed as a place where they don't sleep. So I think technology will, in the next few years, will provide us with tools to manage patients. Shirley, I know when we talked earlier that you tried a whole host of things to help with your sleep. Can you share some of the things you tried and, and how it went for you? Oh, yeah, the, the list is very, very long, so I'll just go through a few. Um, I mean, most of them didn't work. Most of them I tried for at least a few weeks. And there were suggestions from, you know, um, generally from my GP or just what I read or learnt about. And, I mean, I tried everything that you have probably heard of. Over the, um, over the years, but in the beginning, I would have just tried simple things, you know, like trying to make sure I went to bed at the same time and trying to make sure I was relaxed and like the no coffee, a lot of the things that um, we've just discussed earlier and make sure I was relaxed and, you know, I hope my daughter, you know, little baby or child, whatever age she was, that she didn't wake up. But I eventually learned that all of that still wasn't working. So I had to, I tried some herbal medicine, some valerian, um, it's like some low-dose valerian and all these things I'd try for a few weeks and it just wouldn't really make any... I mean, I might get an extra hour or two, maybe three or four nights, three or four hours sleep, which would be okay, a lot better than when I was not having a good night. But then I'd try, after the valerian on low-dose, then I'd try, you know, double strength. <laughs> that still wouldn't work. So then I'd try different things. So then um, at one stage, well, different stages, my GP would recommend some sleeping medication. So I would try, you know, like some low dose things there. And then at, at one stage I was taking Stillnox and I was taking one tablet a night. I found that actually helped that I could sleep, um, probably get five hours with that. I, and I could manage it on half a, while, half a tablet rather than a whole one. So that was really good. I just had to take it just before I went to bed because it works really quickly. Um, I tried, Numerous other things. I tried all the typical things, which is, you know, like the covers over your eyes, the eye um, pillows and eye masks. And earplugs were actually really helpful. They really did help me. Uh, and you have to tell people to persevere because the first night or two, you actually probably sleep worse because you've got to learn to switch off. It actually makes you switch off from the world and all the worries of the world, which is, you know, one of the problems that I had. So... I'd say the first two nights, the earplugs really didn't help at all. But by the third night, I did start sleeping deeper. 
And so maybe not longer, but a deeper sleep did make me feel a bit more refreshed. So I would certainly recommend the earplugs as um, something that did help me. I found setting um, the time thing that we talked about earlier about a 20-minute thing. So if I woke up and I was awake for more than 20 minutes, but I was always trying not to clock watch because clock watching is terrible and don't have the light facing you where your eyes are as well. But I would, if, if I was awake more than 20 minutes, then I would get up and because there was no point not just staying in bed awake, because sometimes I'd just lie there for the next four hours awake, just watching it, you know, another hour, another hour, oh, at six o'clock I can get up now. So, but what I would do is it really did help to have the 20 minutes get up, and then eventually someone said, you know, and I learned about the warm milk, and I thought, well, how is warm milk gonna help this? But that actually did really help a lot. Apparently it releases tryptophan, and that's really helpful to help you to sleep. So what I would do is get up, have some warm milk, and then I would just sit and either read or watch um, the TV. That was something very calming. And then I would actually start to feel tired and go back to bed. So often I could get another couple of hours sleep after that. So that, that was way down the track, not in the first few years, but that made a big difference. And just learning to be more relaxed made a big difference, like learning to get rid of some of my stresses and be a lot more relaxed. I think where meditation can be helpful is because insomnia is so often so often involves that hyper arousal and that anxiety that comes on at bedtime. So often for people, it's you know getting into bed is the first time they have to process the day's worries, or it's become a conditioned response that now bed is associated with worry. So meditation can be very helpful in terms of reducing hyper general hyper arousal, but also as a strategy to manage worries more effectively. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it though as kind of do this right before bed. I'd say kind of practice it daily because when people do it right before bed, it can often become like a tool. Oh, I have to do this or else I'm not gonna sleep properly. And it, they're almost using the meditation in order to sleep. And that's a little bit counterintuitive because what we wanna teach patients is you don't have to try to sleep. And nobody mentioned uh, body warmth temperatures that you know, you've got to be warm to drop off. Is that right? The opposite, yeah. Much better to be cold. And I slept much better when I was cold and I still sleep much better if I'm cold. So not so much, not necessarily cold, but certainly a dip in temperature, you know, is associated with falling asleep. So probably erring on the side of cooler rather than warmer. So particularly you've got to lose heat from your extremities. So wearing thick socks to bed, it is not really sensible for people with insomnia. Melatonin itself, one of its mechanisms of part of its sleep induction is that it increases the heat loss through the distal, you know, limbs. So Ron, I'm curious to know, is there a relationship that we know of between insomnia and the risk of suicide? I think it's complex because, you know, who's depressed and who just has insomnia? But I mean, I always thought, you know, that as a group, people with insomnia have more mental health problems and therefore have more suicide. But whether, if you truly have someone who's got insomnia but doesn't have depression, I'm not aware of that being a suicide risk. What is the role of medication in managing um, insomnia? I guess if you look at the evidence just generally for medications, um, you got to understand, like, like most conditions like depression, restless legs, um, there is a strong placebo effect that you'll see. So everyone's sleep gets better if they're taking a tablet. And 
as generally in other studies, when you substitute surreptitiously placebo instead of the active medication, if you get ethics committee approval for that sort of thing, people respond very well to, to placebo in that situation. So that's, that's point one to be aware of it. Just, and I, you know, I've got to, I deal with sleep apnea, and I can tell you that because our studies show that one third of the effect of CPAP is actually placebo. So just putting a mask on your face makes you more awake, you know, during the day, you know, even though it's delivering no pressure. So I'm always a great believer in placebo effect. I think that um, the evidence for things like um, like acute mel short-acting melatonin, so the melatonin you'd get from a you know prescription uh, for compounded melatonin as a hypnotic, just to help people go off to sleep, is not very s strong. Um, melatonin's a great hyp better hypnotic when you're taking it when your body says you want to be awake rather than helping sleep. I think things like valerian, um, you know, the evidence base is, is there, but it's fairly modest, and basically they all affect the GABA system. Um, and, and so they are kind of like softer versions of, of Stilnox or, or benzodiazepines. Um, I think also that there is evidence that combining cognitive behavioural therapy with short-term hypnotics is superior to cognitive behavioural therapy alone. There's quite a major paper on that published about five years ago. And therefore, you know, we've always, in our clinic, always operated a combined, you know, medical practitioner, psychologist. I'm not saying patients are seen by both, but, you know, you discuss whether if you're going to institute a cognitive behavioural therapy, you would, you know, you would add medication in that sort of situation. And again, you're prescribing it for, for short term. Um, I think there's a revolution coming in hypnotic medication, and I say that because in the past all medications have been ones that interact with the GABA system. So, you know, from barbiturates to benzodiazepines to Stilnox to, to everything, valerian, you know. Whereas now there's a new class of medications which are what are called orexin antagonists. So they actually target the sleep in, you know, mechanism that's within the hypothalamus and they don't have generally effects because orexin is a very limited neuronal system in the brain. So for example, if you have a loss of orexin completely, that you have narcolepsy. And that's, so if you, you sort of contemporary, you can use these orexin antagonists to temporarily sort of make you sleepy. There are people who kind of develop tolerance there are people who I'd never put on sleeping medication because they've got addiction problems and they will always escalate the dose. I can't tell you, I mean, I'm not sure, most of you I understand are psychologists, so what we see is increasingly use of major tranquilizers like Seroquel for quetiapine for um, insomnia. And my first reaction was, you know, whoa, you know, and I do get people on three, 400, 500 milligrams who don't have schizophrenia or any any you know major severe mental illness and that worries me but then what about 25 what about 50 and on the other hand there are people who the reality is whether no matter you deliver them the best behavioral care they do better with medication and you've got to accept i mean i think if you say that's terrible it's a bad outcome you're not being a realist you know but um 
you try and look for alternative strategies and you also got to worry about, you know, I don't like, you know, that's why I don't like sort of giving older people benzodiazepines. They're going to fall over, they're going to, um, you know, some people argue that it accelerates um, uh, cognitive impairment in the age, you know. Can I just add one, one thing to that from a more of a psychological perspective? I think um, the times where I've seen it clinically is I often notice that people are using medication as a safety behaviour. So it's something that's actually preventing them from addressing this anxiety that uh, Liz was speaking about earlier, about falling asleep. And so um, I agree in the short term, I think, and, and for the, in the long term for some people, but for some people it can be used as a stopgap and then there is a risk of, the, of this dependency. And so what I try and do is work with a psychiatrist or the GP or whoever's um, prescribed it to taper that off while engaging more in the cognitive side of things. And some people do really well and some people don't. And yeah, I mean, I think as well, there is a lot to be said for the cognitive, uh, the t cognitive treatment. So often in my experience, people think that they're sleeping a lot worse than they actually are. So they think that their, their daytime functioning is, is impaired to a greater extent when you get them to do some behavioural experiments and collect some evidence about the areas of impairment or what's actually happening, um, it's, they're doing much better than what they thought. And sometimes simply feeding that back that information and looking at their, their goals and the things that they want to um, uh, complete each day, that it's, a, it's about finding a balance. Like, are you okay with getting less sleep, not using medication and using these strategies? Um, and the trade-off is, well, in most cases, you can't actually see a there isn't a dramatic difference um, for some people. Um, I think a, a couple of things here, but as far as the, when I was in my 20s, I worked in hospitals. So I was on call and working shift work and doing lots of different um, like nights where I wouldn't have proper sleep anyway. So I don't think that necessarily um, contributed, but may, maybe it did make me more predisposed later on to have something, I'm not sure. But I didn't have any, um, any sleep issues through my 30s, and it wasn't until I had the the, my, the birth of my daughter, and I, that's when I had the depression, and I had mental health. I had nothing prior to that, no history, and then I was com uh, quite unwell for a couple of years, well, probably six months or so, and then I was on medication um, that did help me sleep. Uh, so the problem really didn't become um, a major problem until my daughter was about two when I went off medications. But I just never worried about it. I just, that was just me and that was how I was. But the reason my GP was concerned about keeping my sleeping, she wanted me to try and have five hours a night. And she was worried about that because she was worried my mental health would slip and I might end up having to go back to hospital. And so that was a key problem that we had to keep an eye on all the time. And so she would, I would try and see her if I wasn't good every week, once a week, to try and um, see how I was actually travelling. So you raise an important point, and that is that, you know, as commented earlier, the very tight linkage between depression and sleep problems, or particularly insomnia. And so when you say, you know, what medications, you know, and insomnia, for some people, you know, who, you know, there is an appropriate role for antidepressants and whereas sometimes they may cause sleep problems in the short term, maybe in the long term, they actually help in terms of the sleep problem. I'd like to ask the panel, how do you approach helping young people who are using cannabis to get to sleep and insist it's the only thing that works? Um, I mean, I guess it's presumably to reduce that arousal in order to sleep. Um, so ideally, it's treatment would be about giving them some more adaptive strategies. My experience with, with um, 
adolescence and sleep problems was limited to delayed sleep phase disorder. And um, that's some of the stuff I did in Berkeley. And so for them, I mean, th their whole phase is shifted. So they, they want to go to bed late and sleep in late, but school starts really early. So they end up being sleep deprived. So at least in that cohort, the treatment wasn't so much a treatment for insomnia, it was a treatment for delayed sleep phase disorder. And I think that's really important to distinguish in adolescence. I think it's a problem. I think that um, motivation is also an issue, how motivated a young person might be to try alternative strategies. Um, is there any, I mean, are there other, is there anything else that they're gaining, their other rewarding experiences they're getting from using drugs? Is it a social thing? Is it a habitual thing? And I think that um, a lot of people might be unwilling or just less motivated to try things like relaxation strategies, you know, establishing a, a bedtime routine. And I think for adolescents in particular, um, the, the routine thing can be really challenging. You've got a, a lot of variants of what happens on the weekends and what happens on weeknights. You might get young people going through rebellious stages who um, end up living elsewhere with different family members or leaving their house late at night to, to for whatever reason. So I think there are a lot of unique challenges that face adolescents. Um, but I would, I mean, I would probably conceptualise the use of cannabis as just another um, strategy that a young person is using to downregulate um, their, their arousal in preparation for going to sleep. And I would be looking at other, other things, having a bath, having some milk, uh, whatever this young person did before they had the sleep problem, perhaps. You raised the point about trauma and I think it's very well established that people who have traumatic experiences or post-traumatic stress have sleep problems and they'll often have characterised by you know, unpleasant dreams, nightmares, poor quality sleep. Um, my main experience has been, personally, has been just because I started seeing a few patients with sleep apnea who were ex-undercover police um, and then a few other sort of people who'd been exposed to torture. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, there's obviously behavioural strategies, sometimes it's intractable. And we, we learnt from studies in Vietnam veterans in the US that um, mini-press or prazosin, which is a sort of, um, used to be used as in hypertension um, and still used sometimes in prostate problems and things like that in randomised controlled trials can be quite effective in people who've got um, just using it at night and it blocks unpleasant dreaming. Uh, you've got to escalate the dose sometimes, but you're only giving it at, at night so the person's horizontal in bed. They're not going to have the effects of low blood pressure or that sort of thing. So we've, we've been using a lot of that in, in that sort of group of severe traumatised people who've got post-traumatic stress, stress symptoms and there is randomised controlled trial evidence of its value. Do you think tyrants could become an issue with any drug that's used for insomnia? I don't believe that every person is going to escalate dose. You know, that's not the... If you look at trial experience, that's not been... You know, when you actually monitor this in phase, phase four studies or whatever, you know, in year-long randomised controlled trials, Dose escalation is not being a huge problem. It is in a cohort of people who are, you know, would dose escalate anything, you know, and I think those people um, are, you know, whether it's genetic or, or environmental or both, but 
that's the group that I think identifying them um, and getting, you know, getting that that addictive tendency managed or controlled is important. Can I just add to what Ron was saying about the prazosin? Because I think that's fascinating. Um, we know that there are REM changes in people uh, with depression and with PTSD, but in PTSD, so in normal people, you have a suppression of adrenergic activity during REM sleep, um, but in people with PTSD, they don't show that same kind of suppression. And one of the actions of prazosin is, is, is on that. So it is a adrenergic antagonist. And I think that's really fascinating. I think that's research will start building about um, interventions that can target specific stages of sleep more effectively. Can I interrupt just there thinking about technology? I know some of you have been involved in using technology in help people with sleep issues. Um, do you want to share some of that? Well, I can talk a little bit. I, it, again, it might sound paradoxical, but actually uh, one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment is that developing um, an app, a phone app, to help young people sleep. And there are some um, online, or there are, are a multitude of available apps in terms of you know, quick bite-sized strategies that people can use when they're trying to fall asleep, relaxation tapes, alarms, there, there are all sorts of things. Um, and so we figure that, or well, I mean, part of the rationale is that young people are using their phones and technology all the time. And it, it's most likely the case that they're up late at night texting their friends, they don't want to put it down because they might miss something. They're, they're doing all of these stimulating things, but we want, we want to have a look and see if whether we can actually use this technology to deliver some of the strategies that we've been speaking about and, and provide feedback. So, so there's all sorts of fancy things now that you can get in a phone and um, they are really just a proxy, but you can get someone to enter, um, keep sleep diaries or use the accelerometer to track movement and feed this information back to back to people so that they have so that they have knowledge about their sleep. If anyone's used a Fitbit, it's a, it's a similar kind of thing. It's not, I mean, it's uh, the reliability and accuracy is, uh, I think, questionable. Um, and we don't have enough um, research yet. But for some people, it can be a really powerful to have some information. It can be quite empowering. And so something that we're doing is looking to see if we can actually harness some of the technologies that young people are already using, and, and indeed adults, I think, that... Um, it's becoming more and more accepted that psychological therapies are uh, increasingly being made available online. And there are some, some programs. There's the Shut Eye program, there's Sleepio, which is something on, your, on, on a phone, which is really translating uh, what you would do in face-to-face -face into an online program or something more bite-sized in, in the form of an app. From a differential diagnosis point of view, are there times when insomnia is actually a symptom of an underlying medical or psychological condition? There's an enormous number of people out there who don't have a conventional sleep disorder, but they have a body clock disorder. So, you know, delayed sleep phase syndrome is classically, you know, that people can't go to bed till one or two or three in the morning, and then they can't wake up till 10 or 11. And, you know, a lot of high prevalence People say, you know, up 10, 15 per cent, you know, some of these reports in, in teenagers of this sort of phenomenon. And it's associated with much higher rates of, of mental health disorders. Um, and, and yet, um, often it's not picked up. And, you know, even people kind of, um, you know, medical profession, I've seen health reporters and their children, you know, they just don't, don't seem to understand that this is actually a clinical condition. We've recently uh, finished a, 
three-centre randomised control trial looking at melatonin and sleep rescheduling and making sure people, you know, get up in the morning and, and get exposed to light. And what we found was that the main effect of giving, giving melatonin helped, but it was giving, there was a strong placebo effect, just actually taking something and saying, this is going to, and you've got to go to bed um, at earlier and this is going to help you sleep, was pretty powerful. And that got them up in the morning. And, and it was actually, I mean, it's a four-week trial. There's a lot of more work to be done, but recognising this entity exists is important. The second point is I think that um, body clock disorders are hallmarks of severe mental illness and often present as an early presentation. And that's why I kind of, when you're talking about the gaming sort of population, I think there's a higher prevalence of mental health disorders and there may be a higher prevalence of severe mental health. They just have disorganised sleep schedules. And that's often their first presenting symptom, that they kind of, they're going to sleep at odd times and they're not functioning at school. And not to forget that maybe, you know, you are dealing with someone who's got developing schizophrenia, you know. It's a, it's a reality, unfortunately. You're right. I mean, insomnia, you know, as I was trying to say, is, is often a symptom of other things. I mean, you can have heart failure and you wake up at night sort of and you don't know why because you've developed what's called chain stokes breathing, so irregular breathing. Thyrotoxicosis, all those people get insomnia if it goes, you know. So there's these sort of medical conditions, um, you know, that, that manifest itself. And so, um, you know, you, you've, got to, you've got to be aware of those. So sometimes, you know, people do need, have got chronic insomnia and, and they may need, need investigation and, you know, I guess a lot of, I mean, a lot of that is done in general practice. You know. What's the evidence around the use of screens in the time leading up to going to bed? What, what is known now is that some people, it's like, the, you know, into individual variation. You know, the whole thing is, you know, this discovery of this melanopsin system, which is in the eye, which is sensitive to light, particularly, you know, blue spectrum, and that interacts with the you know, circadian system and has an alerting effect and sleep inhibiting effect. Um, but even that melanopsin system, it's variation in sensitivity amongst individuals. So some people could stare at a blue light for, you know, three hours and then, you know, fall off to sleep. A bit like coffee, you know, that's a genetic sort of tendency. Could you perhaps discuss the correlation between time spent in the different sleep phases and sleep quality? So the normal pattern is, look, stage one sleep is sort of like something between wake and, and proper sleep and people argue whether it's really sleep or transition phase. And then it's, you go into stage two sleep, which is the commonest stage of sleep, about 50% of sleep is stage two sleep. And then you go typically in, into what's called slow waves, that's stage three or four. So slow wave is a time when, in you know, young kids particularly or even older, growth hormones produced. So if you don't, you know, there are cases of people with fragmented slow wave sleep as, as children who get growth impairment. Um, but it's also the time when you sleepwalk, have night terrors and all that sort of stuff. So night terrors and sleepwalking typically occur in the first hour of sleep, typically, okay? Um, and then you go into REM, okay? And people argue about... Some people have very short time to REM sleep, so narcolepsy, 
uh, bipolar disorder, depression, some of those, that sort of thing. But generally you'll have three or four chunks of REM across the night and you will transit, you know, and, and slow. So REM becomes more common across the night and slow wave becomes less common. So slow wave's first half of the night more common and REM the second half of the night and you've got stage two everywhere. So, yeah, I think it's reasonable to say that, and we know that from sleep apnea because a lot of people get just REM sleep apnea and they'll often be complaining of memory problems and sleep problems because their REM is, is fragmented. Um, so you do need adequate amounts of all the different sleep stages, um, including REM sleep. I mean, REM sleep is very important for neuronal development. I mean, that's why newborns, you know, 70% of their sleep is REM sleep. Um, and as you get older, you know, you get less of it. And as you get older, you get less slow wave sleep. But people argue that people who age more gracefully biologically have preserved slow wave sleep. Is daytime napping a problem? Are you discouraging it? Depends if you're driving a truck or not. <laughs> I mean, most guidelines for insomnia patients would say you should discourage it because we really want to build up that um, sleep pressure so they'll you know, have more opportunity to sleep at night time. But the evidence isn't very good to say that it's problematic. And in fact, very sh short naps, 10 to 20 minutes, have been shown to improve cognitive performance um, and mood. So typically for patients with insomnia, I'm telling them not to nap. But if you don't have insomnia and the napping helps you, just keep it to the short, brief power nap so that you're not getting into slow wave sleep. Ron, what's your approach to treating delayed sleep phase? Well, look, I think there's a few issues with, with uh, if you've got, if delayed sleep phase syndrome is a, is a syndrome, so it's a cluster of things, you can actually diagnose it accurately if you take salivary or blood melatonin levels in dim light, and, which is what we did in this research study. So there are a lot of people who have symptoms of delayed sleep phase, but not all of them have the classical shifting in, because that's what happens, you get a shift in melatonin rhythms, you get a shift in temperature rhythms. In those people with genuine, that, I want to say, biological uh, delayed sleep phase, the evidence seems to be that appropriately timed immediate release melatonin, because so many people are given circuit and this extended loop, that, that doesn't work. In fact, it's probably more harmful for people. So you've got to give immediate release melatonin, you need to give it, you know, people argue, but, you know, if you, if you don't have that and you're not going to have that melatonin information about blood melatonin levels, so generally you're aiming for someone goes, you know, is currently going to bed at 1 o'clock, you're aiming at 8 o'clock or 8.30, something like that, they're taking. And one milligram probably is as, as effective as three or f probably one milligram is the dose. Um, that... Plus, you know, getting into bed and all the sort of distractions away and getting up in the morning and getting light exposure is, is the correct treatment for delayed sleep phase. But recognising that there are other disorders that are associated, depression and other mental health problems which are associated in higher prevalence. Good. We might finish there. Please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. We feel like we've got lots of expert insights tonight and I think we're all going to go home and have fantastic sleep. Thanks for joining us this evening.
you for listening to the Black Dog Institute podcast series. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to the series on iTunes, Google Play, or as a direct download from our website. If you are interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.